Romans 11, 25 to 32. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As is written, the deliverer, deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. The word of the Lord. Good morning, Grace Life. How's everybody doing today? Uh oh, not yet. <laughs> I want to start with a prayer and then I want to give you a brief update on some leadership developments, which are really exciting. And then we'll jump in together. And today is first Sunday, so you're going to have to remind me if I forget at the conclusion of the sermon if you have believing children in the back who you want to invite to partake of communion and sit at the Lord's table with you. That will be your cue when we close the sermon time and prayer for you to go grab them and the teachers have been aware of that. So uh, let's pray, then a quick update, then we'll jump into Romans 11 together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much. What a privilege and, and high blessing it is, God, that we don't ever want to take for granted to be able to gather together, united with one another. As your word says, there are powerful realities that happen when we meet together that don't happen when we're apart from one another. And I pray for those who are unable for different reasons to gather in person face-to-face with us today. I pray they would feel your presence and be helped by the Word of God being preached and the songs we sing, being able to connect either through this recorded service later on or right now through the live stream. I pray that the technology would work. Thank you for it. And I ask that you would help us, Lord. Your spirit would come. He would be present in a powerful way. Your spirit, Lord, who authored the word of God and and who illuminates our minds, opens our minds and grants us faith to, to see, to believe, to enjoy, to see the beauty and the power and the realities that are there. We know there are marvelous things in your word. We need your help to see them and to believe them and to apply them to our lives. Please help us to do that, Lord. I know Romans 11, as thrilling and exciting as it is, can seem so far removed from us here in the West where there is a predominantly a Gentile church. So I pray these realities would fill us with hope and excitement, anticipation, and with worship the way that Paul intended for them to, the way you intended for them to, Lord. That's, we're drawing near the close of this chapter, which is just a doxology of praise how unsearchable, how unsearchable is, is the wisdom and the riches of God and unscrutable are your ways. Lord, we bow before your sovereignty and your love and your majesty and your power today. May we sense and experience all those things in a powerful way as we behold your truth and we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a quick update. As you guys know, 
Our little church is growing, which means our shepherding needs are growing, and we need help shepherding the flock of God. We take that very serious as a New Testament church, and we believe what the Bible teaches collectively in the New Testament is a form of leadership in the New Testament church known as a plurality of godly men that are called elders. And uh, we've, for the last five or so years now, we moved from a board of directors to a, a governing board of elders. And we have a set of bylaws that shows us how do, we, how do we select elders. We have a Bible that tells us what the qualifications are for those elders. And we have a process that we try to vet men. We, we give an on-ramp to our members to nominate men. And as you know, some of you have asked for an update because it's been some time. We have been praying and we have been meeting together. Um, and when we opened up the, the floor to members to nominate elders, 16 men were nominated to serve as elders. And amongst that 16, which is a big number, amongst that number, uh, we went to them individually. And the first thing we asked, there's 16 qualifications for an elder in the New Testament. Two of them are things you either have or you don't have. The others are character developments that we're always growing in. The two that you have or don't have are, uh, number one, you either have the desire or it's called aspiration. Will, you could say a willingness to serve. You either want to serve as an elder or you don't. That's either there or it's not there. So of the 16 men, eight had the aspiration or the willingness to serve. But we, don't, we didn't need eight new elders. We have right now myself, Bill, Roth, and Steve Ekman. We have three elders uh, and we didn't need eight more. We needed some more. So we have a nomination review committee that helped us go through that list of 16, talk to some of them, interview some of them, and we narrowed that down to eight. That's still too many. Uh, so we began to meet as a board of elders. The nomination review committee passed along their recommendations to us, and as we met and as we prayed, that list of eight got narrowed down to five. And then after one meeting, that list of five got narrowed down to four. Um, so now we have four lay elders who are willing and excited to serve. And here's what our bylaws say happens next. Because there's no blueprint in the New Testament for, okay, you've got men that meet the qualifications. Uh, now what do you do next? Well, it just, Paul just says, hey, in every city, he's writing the Titus. He says, every city uh, that you go to appoint elders. He doesn't say really how to do that. So we're left to the wisdom and the, and the leadership of the church. So here's what our bylaws say. It says, on an appointed day, we give you a seven-day notice, which is what I'm doing today. I'm giving you a seven-day notice. Next Sunday, I'm going to share the names of the four men who are willing and eager and we believe qualified to serve as lay elders for the next season of growth and existence of Grace Life Church. So next, next Sunday, seven days from now, I'm going to announce their names. And then the bylaws say this. You, as members, if you're a member here, you have 21 days to interact with those men and their names. And if you have a question, or you have an affirmation, or you have a burden, or you have a concern, then you come to the existing elders, and we talk about that. Here's what, here's what uh, some churches do, and this was actually in an older version of our bylaws, but we changed that two years ago. It says, forget the 21-day period. You, you pick the men, you make sure they're qualified, and then you stand up and you say, here are the men. Does anybody have any problem with that? And then somebody may raise their hand and say, I have a problem with it. And it's very awkward. It reminds me of the weddings that I used to go to when I was younger. And somebody would, somebody would say, uh, does anyone have any reason why this man and this woman shouldn't be joined together in holy matrimony? You remember that? 
That was always super awkward. Even when I wasn't the pastor officiating, I always thought this is going to be super awkward if some ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend goes, but I love them. I don't want them to get married. So we don't do that here. What we do is we walk in the light. That's one of our values. That's one of our cultural values here is we give you 21 days to, to think about, to pray about, to interact with these men and the qualification list given in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter 5. And that's, plenty, that's three weeks to interact with them. And then at the end of that time, we're going to announce those men's, uh, that's the final step where we will introduce them and we will install them as elders. So I feel like that was really clumsy the way I went about that. So here's the deal. Seven-day notice right now, okay? I'm serving notice. Next Sunday, we're going to introduce the four men, their names, and then you have 21 days to interact with them, and then we're going to install them. And that's exciting because if we have four men that are going to be new, added to three men who are already serving, you know what that number is? I like that number, don't you? Seven elders. All right. Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11, and we're going to we're going to dig in this together, and I'm going to read. I'm going to read some of that again just to set the context for us. This is what the Apostle Paul says, and you guys are going to have to help me up there if you can, if, we're, if we have capability to... I don't think my remote is going to work with the uh, PowerPoint today. It's not. Verse 25, Paul says this. He says, Lest you be wise in your own sight... I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now we're going to stop right there. I'm probably not going to get very much further than that today. It's Communion Sunday, and I have a lot to say about this passage, and I, initially I was going to try to cram it all into one service, but I don't want to do that. I don't want to deprive you, and I don't want to short-circuit uh, the message itself. So for today, we have three points. I'm not going to make it through all three of them. The last one will be for next week, but can you pull up that outline? This is what I hope to do, because I see three things here, and you'll notice some of these sound familiar, because Paul, all throughout chapter 11 of Romans He's been reintroducing us to this, to this cycle of what he's hoping to accomplish here. Uh, throughout Romans, actually 9, 10, and 11, Paul is, is considering a question. Has God turned his back on the nation of Israel? Is God finished with the Jews? That's a question that Paul knows the church at Rome is going to have. Because when this letter was written, by and large, the church... In Israel consisted of Gentiles, right? The Jews had rejected the apostolic message. They've rejected Jesus, Yeshua, as their Jewish Messiah. They rejected him. Uh, that's what John's gospel said. He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to them he gave the right or the privilege or the authority to become children of God. So Paul is dealing with this question, what is going on, Paul? The Old Testament scriptures are written in Hebrew, the Messiah is Jewish. The apostles were all Jews. And yet, by and large, as a whole, the nation of Israel has rejected God. Has God returned the favor? Is he going to reject them the same way that they rejected him? And Paul's answer is a resounding no. No, God forbid. He has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. 
and he's given multiple reasons for that and argued and it's been compelling and it's been inspired. He says, look, I'm a Jew. I'm an apostle. I'm here. There's always been a remnant according to the election of grace. And he's saying, uh, and beyond that, God's not finished with the nation of Israel. He has a plan for Israel. That's the title of this message, God's plan for Israel. There will be a future restoration for the nation as a whole. So what Paul is doing today, he is going to give us some revelation here. He's going to unpack a mystery. He's going to show us what God's plan for Israel in the future is. And the reason he's doing that is really, there's a lot of reasons, but I want to point out three today, okay? The first is so that we won't be proud. You know, when we, when we give our own interpretation for history, sometimes it makes us really proud, even when we're wrong. Even when we're wrong about, hey, this is happening with the nation of the Jews, and this is what is going on with the Gentiles, and this is why. Because we're better than them. Because God's just crazy about us, and He's forgotten them. He's done with them. And Paul's correcting that. He's saying, don't be proud. Don't have spiritual elitism. Don't have this national or ethnic pride. Beware of that. That's what it says in verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. Another translation says, I don't want you to be ignorant. That's point two. Really, point two is the umbrella for everything I want to say today. Paul doesn't want us to be ignorant because ignorance leads to pride. It leads to cynicism. Don't be cynical. That's the last point. So Paul, by unveiling this mystery, it's a revelation. It's a prophecy that God gave to him. Paul is, is killing a bunch of birds with one stone, so to speak, right? He's going to crush his, our pride. He is going to help us with our being cynical, maybe being jaded, or maybe even being naive, he wants to fill us in. He wants to put us in the know. So that's our outline for today. Don't be proud. Don't be ignorant. Don't be cynical. God's unfolding plan for the church in the future and how Israel is going to be reunited as that natural olive branch to that trunk that we talked about. So verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight, don't be proud. What's he talking about here? Well, here's what was happening. Gentiles are looking at the Jewish landscape and they are seeing wholesale rejection. They're seeing God opening up a door for them to step in. That's what it means because of the trespass. That means a false step. The Jewish nation rejected Jesus. They stepped out of the way and God opened a door for us, for the Gentiles to step in. And so as is often the case, the Gentiles started thinking, man, we're, God's crazy about us. We're his favorite. He's done with the Jews and now it's our turn, and I think we're better than them. I think God is finished with, the, with the, the nation of Israel, and Paul's correcting that. He's saying, don't, don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be proud. Don't practice spiritual elitism. Don't be arrogant. We've already gotten one warning about this in the, in the previous passage about the branches. Remember, he said, don't be arrogant. Don't boast against the other branches. That phrase was used of gladiators. Greek Roman gladiators who stood over their victims who were dying and were bragging about, yeah, tell it now. That's the same idea. He's saying don't boast against the branches, against the Jewish branches. Don't think that you're superior to them. Don't think that you're better. Don't think that you have more worth or more value in God's eyes. You don't. You don't at all. The ground at the foot of the cross, they've said, is all what? It's all equal. There's nothing more equalizing than to look at the cross. And to say, hey, look, you're so sinful, 
This is what God had to do for you. He had to send his son to die in the flesh. But you're so loved, he was glad to do it. You're more sinful than you, than you ever imagined, but you're, but you're more loved than you ever dared to hope. That's the way one person summarizes that. So, the antidote to all pride is truth. And that's what Paul is going to do. He's going to unleash, unleash this gospel nugget, this reminder that we stand because of faith. Right? He said that earlier. The only reason that we stand is because of our faith, because of our belief in Christ, our belief in the gospel message. And listen, the other side to that is, the parallel to that is, the only reason that the Jewish nation to date has not been grafted in yet is because of their unbelief. It's not because of their inferiority. It's not because of our superiority. It's because of our faith and it's because of their unbelief. Listen, guys, this is a great, great reminder for Grace Life Church. The only reason that we stand, and I love the way that Paul selected his word so carefully. It says we stand by faith. It doesn't say we run. It doesn't say we walk. It doesn't say we pedal. It doesn't say we float. I don't like those word pictures. I don't like those analogies. And Paul doesn't either. He says we stand. What's that mean? That means it's a position. Psalm chapter 1. The unrighteous shall not what? Stand in the assembly. Why? Because they have no ground for it. We stand by faith. That means a position. It means a status. God has resurrected us, right? He has poured His Spirit in us. He has quickened us, given us life, and we stand by faith. Not by works, not by our worth, not by some kind of national or ethnic or racial superiority, not at all. Paul's squashing that. He's killing that. He wants that to dissolve and go away. It is by faith and by faith alone that anybody enters the kingdom, that anybody gets into the church, that anybody enters into the family of God or becomes a citizen of heaven. It's only by virtue of faith in Jesus and nothing else. And listen, when we stand in front of a bleeding Savior and, and look at that cross, how can you boast? That's what Galatians chapter 6 verse 14 says. Paul says, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ crucified. He says, I'll boast in that. I'll boast in an execution instrument, right? Because through that, I was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to me. Man, that's another sermon for another day. But what other reality, what other truth helps you kill your sins and crucify the world? It's not do better, try harder, pedal faster. It's the cross. It's our faith in the dying Savior and the resurrected Savior. That's the only reason that we stand at all. And when we realize that, we don't have anything to boast about, do we? We don't have anything to be arrogant about, and we don't have anything to despair about either. It's arrogant and it's presumptuous to think that we are in the Christian church because of who we are, or because of what we've done, or because our ethnicity. And, and listen, guys, I know we're thinking like, yeah, we get that. But I wonder sometimes if we do. I talk to so many people, and I ask them, hey, are you a Christian? You know what? Probably 90% of a false answer or warped, perverted understanding of the gospel that I hear when I talk to people, and it's, just to be honest and walk in the light, it's super awkward sometimes. When somebody wants to join the church, I'm not trying to scare you at all, okay? This is a good thing. We have interviews with people. We want to hear their, their salvation story. How did you come to know Jesus? And sometimes I'll just be really blunt, like, hey, talk to me about how you became a Christian. And it's, it's, not only is it scary and dangerous, it's tragic and it's sad when people say, oh, I was born into it. I was born a Christian. Man, that's hard. That's a hard, 
you have to call a spiritual timeout in your mind and say, Lord, help me. Help me to, to address this issue with love, with gentleness, with clarity, with power, and from the Bible. And I have to say, as honestly and as humbly as I can, no, you, you, you weren't born a Christian. You were born a sinner. You are born in sin. The Bible says we all were born in sin. We were born with our backs to God and with our legs running away from Him as fast as they could carry us. All of us were, without exception. That's what Romans 3 has taught us, right? There are none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned. The law comes and it shuts the mouth of everyone. It says the whole world has become guilty before God. You were not born a Christian. You may have been born into a Christian family, thank God for that. What a privilege, what a blessing, right? You weren't born a Christian, and you weren't born into Christianity either. And here's that mindset. It's like, come on, man, this is America. Christianity is as American as apple pie. No, it ain't. Pardon the French, it ain't. It's not natural at all. Do you know how weird it is that we're Gentiles and that we're worshiping a Jewish Messiah? Do you realize how awkward that is, how weird and strange and amazing that is too? Romans 9 says, to them belong the adoption, the ordinances, the law, the feast, the festivals. They had all the privileges. They had all the signposts, all the rituals, all those things that pointed to Jesus coming. We had none of those things. We were aliens, strangers to the commonwealth of Israel. We were without hope in the world, in darkness. And God in His mercy and His grace, and He plucked us out, and He resurrected us, and He said, there's room at my table for you but you got to go through the same way, repentance and faith. There's only one way, one way, no other name is given among men through which we may be saved but the name of Christ, right? Nobody comes to the Father except through me. There's not two ways, there's not two covenants, we'll talk about that in a little bit. There's one way. Now how, how gross and, and, and tragic is it that Gentiles... Who have, been, who have found a way into God's presence through Jesus when it was a Jewish religion, right? How, how terrible is it that we would say, you know what? God's done with them. We're better. We're in, they're out. We're the, new, we're, the, we're the new branch, right? We're the new tree. God's just crazy about us and not about them. Paul is addressing that mindset. It exists today. It still exists. Pride is a terrible thing. It's an ugly thing. And it's a deadly thing. Do you, know where, do you know where ethnic pride can lead to? Do I need to give you a history lesson? we got a slide on this somewhere up there. You know what it can lead to? There's where it can lead to, right there. Very dangerous. Do you, know, do you know what that would have done to Hitler's Germany had people paid attention to Romans 11? Did you know since the Holocaust, they've tried to ban Jewish uh, evangelism? And a lot of people feeling so shamed because of that have given in to that and said, you know what, let's just let them be. They've said that's the, one of the greatest forms of anti-Semitism is evangelism. And I think it's one of the greatest forms of Jewish love, right? All right, let's take that down. I don't want to look at that anymore. That's where ethnic and national pride can lead when it takes a really wrong turn, right? We're superior. We're a better race of people. We've got it all together, and they don't. Pride, it led Lucifer, Satan, his fall from heaven, Adam and Eve stood before the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and because of pride, they defined wisdom and righteousness and good and evil on their terms, not God's. Pride is the first sin, and it's the worst sin. It's the most dangerous sin. And when it grips hold of a people group, it gets really ugly, and that's why Paul is trying to nip this, kill it, root it out, pull it up by its roots, and burn it. 
That's why you're going to see this repeated cycle all through the book of Romans, especially right here in chapter 11. That's why we had warnings. He said, hey, don't boast against the branches. Not only is it, not only is it, don't be proud, it's don't be complacent. Don't be complacent. If they were the natural branches and God broke them off because of unbelief, know that he'll do the same to you. And I know we're allergic to warnings. We love grace so much, and I do too. But listen, Paul is not, in these passages here, he is not contradicting eternal security or that you're secure once you're in Christ. He's not contradicting that at all. He's calling out counterfeits. He's saying, listen, if you have a pride that will be so deep and so systemic that you would say, I'm better than them and I'm here uh, because of my superiority, he says, you, you don't understand a thing about the gospel. You don't understand a thing about Christianity. So don't reject those warnings, embrace them. It's a call to hold fast to Christ. Remain in the vine. Bear fruit. Remain a disciple. Stay apprenticed to Jesus. That's what these warnings mean. Pride is a very subtle sin. Listen, it manifests itself in different ways. One of them is by this superiority thing, by by thinking that you're better. And the other is, sometimes I think, I think pride manifests itself in despair. Because we begin to think, you know what? God reached me in this way, but those people aren't anything like me. He could never reach them. They're too far gone. The gospel could never make its way to them. And I think we experience this sometimes, and we don't really know where that comes from. I think it's pride. We forget, man, God, God is able, if God was able to graft us as a wild olive branch back into the trunk of the tree, the Jews are not going to be any trick at all. He can do that. And listen, not only that, here's the application for you. Right now, you can close your eyes and think about the person that you love, you care very deeply about. They seem so far from the kingdom. They seem so shrouded in unbelief, obstinate, hard, blind, hostile, Toward the Christian faith, listen guys, God could save them so easily. One of the things that, that Paul is, is wanting us to keep our eyes on is, man, don't give up on anybody. As long as they're, if you're not dead, God's not done, right? He can save anybody. He saved Paul. He saved Manasseh in the Old Testament. Paul's the chief of sinners. He killed Christians. God can save anybody. When we say God can never reach that person, that's a, a strange and subtle form of pride. It's like, oh, well, how did he reach you? Seriously, that's pride, isn't it? God could never save them. Why not? Oh, they're worse than you. That's why, right? <laughs> that's, what, that's how pride manifests itself sometimes. God is able to do it. If you look at Israel today, if we're honest, it seems really hopeless. And it seems really dark. Even spiritually oppressive, there's, there's a thick blanket of resistance and hostility toward the gospel, toward Christ, over the nation of Israel as a whole. Ray Stedman called it a supernatural phenomena. This is what he said. He said, you can't explain it by the normal reasons for resistance to the gospel. I do not know if you have had any occasion to try to witness to a Jewish person. If you have... Perhaps you have run up against what seemed to be a rock wall of indifference and resistance to what you were trying to say. If so, you may well have been experiencing what Paul is talking about in Romans 11. This strange hardening toward the gospel 
by Jewish people. It is not because the Jews are inferior in intelligence. They are among the most intelligent of people. It is not because they don't want God. They are among the most religious of all people. Ordinarily, you would think they would be open. They would want to be open to hearing the good news of how God and grace is ready to meet, ready to reach men and women and change them and indwell them and enrich their lives. And yet those who go among the Jews often find this strange resistance, this anger that is awakened because of the preaching of the gospel. It's easy to look at that landscape and think that God is finished with them. And listen, application. It's easy to look at our current landscape and think that God is done too here in America. And I hear that all the time and that irks me. That really irks me when I hear a preacher saying God has written Ichabod over America and it's done. It's like, well, what kind of authority do I have to say that God has done with America? Did, did, was there a prophecy that came out that I missed? <laughs> I mean, he, he's, he saved me. I'm not, you know, I'm not 500 years old here. I mean, that's a relatively new work. I got saved when I was 23 years old. Praise God. He saved you. Some of you are young, right? Is God done with America? Okay, amen. He's not done here. So that's another form of pride or pessimism or we get so jaded. That's why Paul is wanting to unveil this. And by the way, when we hear the word mystery, it's not that it's something really difficult to grasp or a real puzzlement or something that's obscure or hard to understand. It's something that needs to be taught. It's something that has been revealed to Paul as an apostle, as a prophet too, and it needs to be uncorked like a bottle of wine. It needs to breathe. It needs to be poured out. It needs to be enjoyed. So this is thrilling. This is exciting. Paul is saying, look, God has given me a revelation and I, this is one of the most thrilling prophecies in the entire Bible, what Paul's telling us here. He said, God doesn't want you to be proud. He doesn't want you to be wise in your, own, in your own mind. He doesn't want you to have this superiority or spiritual elite complex. So God through me is going to reveal what his plans are. He doesn't want you to be proud. He doesn't want you to be ignorant. God is not finished with the nation of Israel. There is a partial hardening upon them. That word hardening could be blindness. It's really the same thing. When you become resistant to the truth, you're no longer sensitive to it. You can't see it. You don't want it. You're blinded to it, right? And we've said before, this is like a judicial hardening. God did this. This was, I believe, in God's response to their unbelief. He's sovereign over that. They rejected Jesus, and a partial hardening came upon them, and it's remained to this day. But here's what Paul is saying. This hardness is not final, it's, it's not complete, it's not total, it's not every Jew. Obviously, Paul's a Christian. The 12 apostles uh, were Jews. They were Christians. The church in that day consisted of pockets of Jews here and there. So it's not a total hardening, not all Jews, but it's also not a permanent hardening. It's temporary. That's the revelation. This hardness is a temporary hardness that one day, when the fullness of the Gentiles has been realized, and man, that's something we're, we want to talk about that next week too. The same word fullness is used of both the Gentiles in this age and the Jews in the age to come. You realize God's still doing a work amongst the Gentile nations. He's not finished yet. When the fullness of the Gentiles is reached, then God is going to turn to the nation of the Jews and their hardening, their blindness is going to be removed and there's going to be a sweeping movement. It's going to make any other revival in the history of of the world look like small potatoes. I love going to the ocean, but this is Florida, man. Our waves are tiny here. When I first moved here, my friend's like, man, you want to surf? And I went to Ormond Beach, and I'm like, surf what? 
And I'm not a surfer, I get it. You're like, you don't get it. I know I don't get it. You can still surf. But I've been to the West Coast, and let me tell you something, man. Them's waves. Those are waves. And you know what? I've seen tsunamis, and I know it's terrible. People die. But when I think about the Great Awakening, or when I think about the Protestant Reformation, or when maybe you think about pockets of people groups here and there who have been uh, just a revival, the gospel pioneer just came to them, and a whole village or a whole tribe, that to me are the waves in Ormond Beach compared to a tsunami of what's going to happen. Because you know what Paul said earlier? He says, look, look, he says, whenever the fullness of the Gentiles is reached, and then God removes this partial blindness and hardening from the nation of Israel, it will be like life from the dead. It will be like Ezekiel 37. Remember the valley of dry bones. Son of man, can these bones live? They look dead. They look dry. They look like these bones have been bleached. Can they live? It will be, I hope, I pray, man, I'm alive when this happens. I want to see this go down. This is going to be something to behold. This is one of the most thrilling things in the entire Bible. Bree uh, Patterson sent me a video of people in Jerusalem, and they were singing. It was a little bit different. They were singing American hymns in Hebrew. It was one of the most beautiful things. I think it was open the eyes of our heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. Vitaly, you've seen that here before, haven't you? It's a beautiful song, and they were singing it in the native Hebrew tongue. And it was one of the most beautiful things. And I started thinking, man, it's going to be something one day to see the nation of Israel. Not every last single Israelite. That's not what the language means when it says all Israel will be saved. It means as a whole. It's going to be such a sweeping mass return to Jesus. Uh, it's going to be beautiful. It's going to be powerful. In fact, let me, I don't think I have a, I don't think I have this verse. Do I have Zechariah chapter 12 in there anywhere in the PowerPoint that you can see? No? Thumbs down? All right. Well, listen, man. Let's see if your pastor can find it. Hey, don't laugh. You find Zechariah. It ain't easy. <laughs> Here we go. Zechariah chapter 12. This is a prophecy about the future. Verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David. Who's that? Israel. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, there's your Old Testament description to the minute detail how Jesus would die. He would be pierced on the cross and then pierced in his side, right? So that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, that's so astonishing. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one who weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. That's a prophecy for what's going to happen. Now, I don't know exactly the timing and people have different views. There's different systems of thought on eschatology, premillennial, post-millennial, all-millennial, people like this is the 1,000-year reign, a literal reign of Christ. He's seated on his throne, and, and I don't know. Everyone has an opinion on that, right? As I look at Romans 11, Paul's not dealing with any of that. Neither is he dealing with, will they inhabit the, will they possess the land? Will unbelieving Jews possess the land? What will the form of government and politic? He's not getting into any of that. All he's saying is, in the future, there will be a massive, sweeping revival, awakening of the nation of Jews, and they will come to Jesus, and they will repent of their sins, 
And they will believe the gospel and they will be grafted back in and it will be something to see. And Paul is unveiling this mystery, this revelation, so that we're not proud, but also so that we're not ignorant. And here's something that I, that I think about. This is a, just a fast application. To be really candid here, maybe water cooler talk, you hear people say, I don't know, man, the, w- the way the world's going, I don't understand it, I don't get it. And I know what they mean. It's things are different than they used to be. Things aren't going maybe the way we would like for them to go. Maybe our preferred lifestyle in America or at large is not what we would hoped it would be. But when I hear people say, man, I don't know what's going on. I don't ever want to be proud. But do you ever feel like saying, I do. <laughs> I, I do. And I'm not just talking about your worldview. We know, uh, we know the way the world's supposed to be. We know what happened. We know what's going to put it right. We know that as Christians. I'm talking about linear history, Right? I know what's going on. I know what happened. I know where history's headed. I'm not arrogant about it. I read the Bible. Check this out. Here's a, here's a verse, one of my favorite verses. Psalm 119, verses 97 to 100. Check this out. This is David. This is before the New Testament revelation was even given. He says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies. Did you hear that? David says, I'm wiser than my enemies. Why? Because your law is my meditation all the day. I have knowledge. I have insight. I have wisdom. I have revelation. I know what's happening. I know what God is doing. I know what he's going to do. I even know how he's going to do it. He goes on, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Anybody ever been a Christian in a university where your teacher hated Christianity? I clung to that verse. It's like, man, you don't understand what you're talking about. I know more than you, but you can't be proud about it. He says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. And then he says, I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Just because you have white hair or no hair doesn't mean your wisdom. You may be an old fool, right? Depending on your, your relationship with the Word of God. So Paul is unveiling this prophecy, this mystery, so that we're not in ignorance. Listen, when you, as a Christian, there should not be a time when you can say, man, I'm in total ignorance as to what, go, what is going on, why it's going on, or where the world is headed. No, we, we get it, man. God has revealed this. We got a guy on the inside, the Apostle Paul. He's really trustworthy. He's given us the inside scoop. And listen, this is not just whistling in the dark. You can set your clock to this. This is going to happen. Check this out. Are y'all tracking today? It's really quiet in here. Today's been a strange day, man. Oh, lots of stuff going wrong in tech. And Okay, here we go. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel. So he's saying, hey, Israel has been hardened and blinded to the gospel, to the beauty and the power of Jesus. They can't see him. Even to this day, when the Pentateuch is read in a synagogue, there's a veil that's covering their eyes. They can't see, they can't perceive, they can't comprehend it. He says, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then verse 26, and oh my word, man, this is glory. This is glory right here, Tom. Verse 26, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now listen, he doesn't mean every single Israelite who's ever lived or who will be alive in that time will be saved, right? We already know Romans has, has told us 
There are people who have already fallen under judgment, and there are people who will fall under judgment. He's not teaching universalism here, okay? What he is teaching is that the majority of Israel will turn to Jesus. Just like the majority of the Jew, uh, the excuse me, of the Gentiles, when the fullness of the Gentiles will come, will we'll turn to Jesus too. But here's what I want to focus on now. He says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved as it is written. So he's going to quote from Isaiah. He's going to quote from Jeremiah. And he's going to quote from Psalm 14. So he's going to quote from the New Covenant. He's going to quote from the Abrahamic Covenant. He's going to quote from the Davidic Covenant. And he's talking about in this way, what way? In this way, all Israel will be saved. They're going to be saved like this. Like, like what, Paul? Check it out. The Deliverer will come from Zion. And he means heavenly Jerusalem, heavenly Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. That's talking about repentance. He will turn people from their sin, right? He will turn Israelites from their sin. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So this is what's so astonishing and what's so amazing. The Apostle Paul is saying God is going to save Israel and he's going to save Jews the same way he saved Gentiles. Repentance and faith. That's the only way God has ever, sa ever saved anybody. He's, he's not going to change that. And the reason that I say that is, is because of this. And Lord help me to be clear here. Because of a lot of the things that has befallen the nation of Israel, primarily amongst them the Holocaust, and the threat that if you evangelize a Jew with the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ, that's a form of anti-Semitism, and it's, con it's considered in some parts of the Middle East a hate crime. Some people have given up, and some people have even developed this, this two-track salvation. It's called two-covenant salvation. We have a covenant of grace. God saves the Gentiles through faith in Jesus and grace alone and faith alone. But, they say, they say this, God is going to save the Jews and the nation of Israel through the old covenant, through their faithfulness to the law, through their obedience, right? People have actually said that. Just leave them alone. Leave them in their Judaism. God's going to save them that way. Listen, friends. No, he's not. <laughs> he's not. Nobody will ever be saved apart from turning from their sin and repentance and turning to Jesus in faith. And this right here is enough to refute that two-covenant nonsense or two-track salvation for all time. Let me read it again. In this way, all Israel will be saved. In what way? The Deliverer will come from Zion. Who's that talking about? It's talking about Jesus. Not David, not Solomon, not a prophet, not a priest, not a king. Well, one prophet, one priest, and one king, Jesus. That's who it's talking about. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And then verse 28. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. We'll get into that more next time. But the point that Paul is making here is there are not two ways of salvation. There are not two covenants. There's only one way to enter the kingdom of God. One, one way to get your place seated at the table in God's kingdom, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. That's the only way he's ever saved anybody. Now, I want to I close with this. There is a, there's a passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, we don't have it on the PowerPoint, but I want to read this. Because when you, when you read about a deliverer, 
I wonder if you think about your salvation that way. You have been delivered. Amen? You've been delivered. You know what that means? It means you've been rescued. You've been transferred. You've been transferred from the kingdom of Colossians says of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. From darkness to light. From judgment to salvation. From captivity to liberation. There's all different ways to think about and talk about salvation. And this is one of the most powerful ways. You have been delivered. And I want to read a verse. There's only one other place really in the New Testament where the same word is used for deliverer and deliverance. And I want to read that to you. Here it is. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And it's Paul writing the Thessalonian church. And he is telling them, I know that when I preach the gospel, I know that you received it. I know that you received us. I know that you received our message. And here's how I know it. Check it out. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us. Same word there in Greek. Jesus, the deliverer. And check this out. Who delivers us from the wrath to come. Jesus is the deliverer. What did He deliver you from? Your sins? Yes. He delivered you from this present evil generation? Yes. You know the main thing that you and I have been delivered from as Gentile Christians? And if you're a Jew, same way. You've been delivered. You and I have been delivered by Jesus from the wrath of God. Now, I know people don't like hearing that word, wrath. Wrath. That's just offensive to hear to most people. They don't want to talk about the anger, the judgment of God falling on people. How could a loving God ever conceive of judging people, especially in hell for all eternity with present torment? People don't like that. Jesus did talk about the wrath of God. He talked about hell more than he talked about heaven, comparatively speaking. And people say, how can, you, how can he do that? How can there be such a thing? Listen, friends. Listen, God's love was costly. If God's love didn't cost him anything, it's just sympathetic. It's just shallow. It's just superficial. It's just trivial. It's like our love, right? I love you today because I feel like loving you. I have a Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, my favorite book to read to my kids at night, my little ones, you know, toddler age. And there's, there's, one, uh, there's one page near the end. And it's Jesus hanging up on the cross, and Sally Lloyd-Jones says this. She says, Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, okay? Says, Jesus could have came down from the cross. He could have called on legions of angels to rescue him, right? He could have came down off that cross and, and delivered uh, judgment on the Jews and the Gentiles and the Romans and Pilate and Herod and everybody else on his followers for turning turn coat, deserting him, forsaking him, abandoning him, but he didn't. He stayed up on that cross. Why did he stay up there? And then Sally Lloyd-Jones says this. She says, it wasn't nails that kept him up on that cross. It was love. And that's true, right? It was love. Jesus' love was a costly love. He didn't have to do it. He was the Lamb of God who willingly laid down his life. Nobody took it from him. He volunteered it. You can't talk about God's love without considering his wrath. Because it's not cheap, friends. It's not cheap. If all we ever do is talk about God's love, it's just like a Hallmark card. Right? No. God loves you and God demonstrates His love, Romans 5. He demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were weak, while we were without strength, while we were enemies, He died for us. 
That's love. That's costly love. And that's God's anger and God's righteous indignation and his judgment all being poured out on Jesus. Jesus up on that cross, I can't explain it. All I can do is fall down and wonder and marvel. How can, how can Jesus absorb the wrath and the judgment of God for, for infinity, for eternity? That's what we deserve. We deserve God's wrath for all eternity. And yet in a finite amount of time, three hours on a cross, Jesus absorbed all of it. It was poured out on him. He drank to the dregs the cup of God's wrath. How could he do that? I don't know. I can't explain that. But he did it. He did that. He was the Lamb of God who takes away, right? The Deliverer who takes away their sins. He was our substitute. He stood in our place. He suffered God's wrath not only just for us but instead of us. That's what a substitute, didn't you learn that when you were younger? You would go to school and there would be a substitute and you would say, good deal, <laughs> Right? We can say that as Christians now. We got a substitute. Good deal. That's a much better deal than you being there where you belong and where you deserve to be. No, God provided a substitute. My son, the Lord, will provide. He did, right? He provided a lamb, a perfect lamb, spotless lamb, without blemish. Jesus was perfect in word and thought and deed. And he moved us out of the way. Oh, man. I remember this is, this is like a parachute headquarters of the world, right? The land is. And every time I see a parachuter and I'm watching, I almost can't watch because I've heard of all the accidents. And there was one that happened that I remember reading about. And it was a, it was a veteran parachuter and he was doing, is it called tandem when you jump with somebody? You know, you're not skilled enough to do it on your own. So you got to get like training wheels. Probably embarrassing for people that want to be all tough. I'm going to jump out of the plane. He goes, not without me, you ain't. I'm like, oh man. <laughs> so, so you got to get the expert up there. And he straps you to himself, right? And that's kind of humiliating. <laughs> Just like, <laughs> you're strapped to this professional, and he pulls the chute, and you float down. He says, we got to do that like 50 more times, and then you're on your own, cowboy, right? Well, I heard about a parachute fail. He pulled the parachute, it failed. Can you imagine what the, what the new guy's thinking? Oh, great. And he pulled the, the backup parachute, and it failed. And they're like barreling. I mean, they're barreling toward the ground. I don't know how fast you go when you jump out of an airplane. Out, yeah, too fast to live, right? And here's what happened. Oh, man, I want to cry thinking about it. Here's what happened. This professional, this professional, uh, I keep wanting to say paratrooper. I've been watching Band of Brothers. That's the wrong word. Parachuter, right? He knew, he knew this is going to kill both of us, but it might only have to be that it kills one of us. So his wife was writing about this. She said he knew exactly what he was doing. At the last minute, at the last minute, he flipped right before they hit the ground. And he absorbed all the impact and it shattered his body. Probably broke every bone in his body. But would you believe that the person who was signing up for the first time to be that novice that had to get strapped, he survived. He survived. Why? Because that man put himself between death, between death uh, and the guy that wanted to go paratrooping that day, right? That's, ex that's a picture, that's a skewed picture. Every illustration falls way short and pales in comparison to the reality. But that's, that ex that's exactly what Jesus did as your substitute. He stood between you and God's judgment and he absorbed every single last drop of it so that you wouldn't have to. He became the curse so that you could become the blessing, right? Now listen, I, I told you last time, Paul has been arguing in a really compelling way here in this chapter that 
what God is currently doing is that we as Gentiles, we're supposed to provoke the Jewish race of people to envy. Our faith is supposed to be so enriching, uh, so wealthy, spiritually speaking, they're supposed to, to be provoked to jealousy and to envy and say, I want what they have. Well, I think we're really struggling in the West to do this, right? But I ask you the question, do you know how rich you are spiritually? Do you know what you've been given in Christ? You are incredibly wealthy. You've hit the spiritual jackpot. New identity, new purpose, forgiveness, a place at the table, rescued. And then I, I, I tried to summarize it this way. It's hard to do, but I tried to do it this way. Imagine the most amazing, wonderful thing, the greatest thing that could ever possibly happen to you. And if you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, it already has happened to you. Now, I want to flip that today as we think about the wrath of God, as we think about Jesus delivering us from the wrath to come. Think about this. What is the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to you? Now, this is a spiritual checkup because I, <laughs> I know you and I know all of you just thought of something that I'm not thinking of, right? You think, well, the economy collapsed. That's terrible. That'd be terrible. Or I could lose a loved one. That's awful. That's happened to some of us, many of us. Or I could get hacked, or my car could get stolen, or I could get that phone call, and they say it's stage four. All of that's terrible news. I'm granting you, that's terrible news. But that's not the worst thing that could happen to you. You realize that, right? You know what the worst thing that could ever happen to you is? You could stand before a God, and He could turn His face away from you and say, I don't know you. He could forsake you. Now, I want to submit to you something. The worst thing that could ever possibly happen to you hasn't happened to you if you're a Christian, but it did happen to somebody else. You realize that? It happened to Jesus. That's exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. That's why he cried out, quoting Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was utterly forsaken on that day by his friends, by the nation of Israel, by his enemies, by the Roman leaders, by the Jewish leaders, and most importantly, by his father. That was the one time, if you could say from eternity past, that there was a break in fellowship between God and His Son Jesus. He didn't call Him my Father, my Father. He said, my God, my God, why have you hidden your face from me? Why have you rejected me? Why have you, why have you abandoned me? That's what you and I deserve. But in Christ, we'll never have to suffer that fate. Ever. Man, you can do a backflip because of that and charge hell with a water pistol. The worst thing that could possibly happen to you won't. Because somebody else took it off of your back. That's the Christian gospel. And if you become numb, numb to that, man, check your heart. Oh my goodness, that galvanizes us. We can face anything. We can face rejection. We can face suffering. That gets underneath all of our insecurities. Man, we got a place at the table. What else is there for us? And what did it cost God? It, it cost Jesus his life. That's what we're celebrating now. His body was broken, right? His blood was shed so that you and I could have a place at the table. And one day, one day, we're going to talk about this more next week, the nation of Israel as a whole is going to experience this partial, temporary hardness removed. God's going to soften their heart. He's going to graft them back in. He's going to open their eyes. They're going to turn to Jesus, and they're going to sing in their native tongue, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We can sing it today, can't we? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this reality, this beautiful and powerful truth. Thank you that you have given us this revelation through your Apostle Paul so that we won't be proud, so that we won't be ignorant, 
And I know we're going to talk about this later so that we won't be cynical, so that we won't be jaded, so that we won't be numb. You want us to be true worshipers of the Lord, and you want the world to see that and want what we have, what we've been given freely by your grace through faith in Jesus alone. Help us to celebrate that well today. Help us to remember this, this communion today is not a time to test our sincerity. It's a time to remember your faithfulness, not ours, Lord. If our salvation depended on our faithfulness, how hopeless of a people would we be, Lord? We are promise breakers. We come from a long line of promise breakers, Lord. You are a promise keeper. You are faithful. This passage reminds us of that, Lord. You're going to keep your promises to Israel, every last one of them, and you're going to keep your covenant promises to us because you have signed those promises in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you that He stood between us and your judgment. He absorbed the wrath so that we could walk away unscathed. He became a hideous curse so that we could become a beautiful blessing, Lord. I pray that we would celebrate that well this morning. In the name of Christ, amen.